0: There is an outline in the bulletin where you can track along with the message this morning. Our passage is Jeremiah chapter 31. I found something interesting this week as I was studying uh, over and over and over again, the scholars and the commentators that I read agreed. When they all agree on something, you kind of pay attention because they usually don't all agree on everything. But they pretty much all agree that Jeremiah 31 is the most important passage in the book of Jeremiah. It's the heart of the book of Jeremiah. That's not to say the rest of the book is not important or unimportant. It's just to say that this passage is particularly important. There's a famous Old Testament scholar named Walter Kaiser. Walt Kaiser, he says it like this, with this text we have reached the apex or the high point of biblical theology for both Testaments, meaning both the Old and the New. And what he's saying is this theme of the New Covenant is the most important biblical theme, Old Testament, New Testament, in all of the Bible. He also points out that this is the longest Old Testament text quoted in the New Testament. There are other Old Testament passages that are quoted more frequently in the New Testament, a a higher number of times in the New Testament, but this is the longest continuous section of Old Testament text that is repeated word for word in the New Testament. So this is a weighty passage that we've come to this morning. Let me just remind you the big picture of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a book about doom and gloom. Jeremiah is talking to people who are about to be conquered by the Babylonians and they're going to be hauled into exile where they will live for 70 years before the Lord brings them back to the promised land. He's warning the people over and over and over again about the judgment to come, And before we get into our passage and we start to work through some of these verses, I just want to remind you, that's the big picture context. Let me remind you of the immediate context, because we aren't going verse by verse in Jeremiah, we're sort of going section by section, and so let me sort of give you some of the immediate context. Jeremiah 28, 29, and 30, those three chapters go together along with 31, but 20, 28, 29, and 30, they wrestle with the question how long will the exile last and when will God restore his people? That's the question that he's talking about, he's wrestling with. How long will the exile last? Some of the false prophets say six years. Jeremiah has said 70. And when is God going to bring the people back and restore them? What's that going to be like when it happens? You remember, as we've talked about, Jeremiah is a prophetic book, it has a lot of prophecy. Jeremiah looks to the future as he's delivering these prophecies and he just sort of scans the horizon. It's like looking at a, a mountain range from a distance. All you see is peak after peak after peak after peak and they all look very close together. But when you get up on those peaks, you realize they're separated, all right? These are three peaks as Jeremiah is scanning the prophetic horizon in chapters 28, 29, and 30. Some of what he says is prophetically fulfilled after the people spend 70 years in exile and they come back to the land. Some of what he's describing is fulfilled then. Some of what Jeremiah says in these chapters is fulfilled in the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus. So it's a later fulfillment. And some of what Jeremiah talks about in these chapters, in this section, will not be fulfilled until the return of Christ in the establishment of the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. So there's multiple prophetic fulfillments out there. And he's looking across this mountain range. He's describing them one after another. But there's time and there's distance between these fulfillments. Now, our passage is Jeremiah 31. If you look at the first part of Jeremiah 31, which we're not doing this morning, you'll find Jeremiah using several metaphors to describe the relationship between God and his people. So one of the things that he says is, God with his people will be like a husband who loves and cares for his bride. That's a a metaphor describing their relationship. He says, God will be like a father providing for his son. God is the father. Israel is the son. That's the nature of the relationship. He says, God will be like a shepherd who will protect his flock. And he's saying all of these things to God's people for a very important reason. They are about to be sent into exile, out of their home, away from the temple in Jerusalem because they're idolaters. They've turned from the Lord. They've forgotten who the Lord is and what He's like. They've chased after all the other gods and goddesses of the nations around them. These people don't have a true, accurate understanding of who God is and what their relationship is like. And so Jeremiah is laying it out and he says, This is how you need to think about the Lord. Don't think about Him like Molech who asked you to sacrifice your children in the valley of the son of Hanam. That's not what God is like. He's like a, a husband who loves his wife, like a father who's protecting his son or uh, providing for his son. He's like a shepherd who's providing for and protecting his flock. This is what he wants the people to think about God uh, as and when they think about the relationship that they have with him. Okay, one more word of context. Our passage looks past the end of the exile, past the return of God's people to the promised land. We're looking at Jeremiah 31, 31 to the end of this chapter. There's an awful lot of prophecy in the book of Jeremiah. The vast majority of the prophecy in Jeremiah was actually fulfilled in the 5th or 6th century BC when the people went into exile and they came back 70 years later. Most of what he predicts, most of what he prophesies about was fulfilled then. Some of it was fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Our passage talks about the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, but it also looks to the future, past the return of the exiles to the promised land. So here's the big idea of our passage. Very simple, but again, the apex of biblical theology. God promised to establish a new covenant with his people. And it's important that he called it a new covenant. He did not say, we're going to renew the old covenant. He did not say, this will be the old covenant round two or three or four or five. He said, I am going to establish a new covenant with my people. Now, covenant is a a word that you've got to wrap your mind around. It's a Bible word. You see it all throughout the Old Testament. You see it in the New Testament. You've got to wrap your mind around this idea of a covenant covenant if you're going to make sense of this passage. So we'll, we'll have some help from Phil Reichen. He says this. I think this is a great definition. A biblical covenant is a binding relationship of eternal consequence in which God promises to bless and his people promise to obey. That's a covenant. It is not just a contract between two more or less equal parties. It is a binding relationship of eternal and lasting consequence And God promises to do something in these covenant relationships. He promises to bless his people. The response that his people make to God's promise of blessing is we promise to obey. That's the nature of a covenant. And when we read about a new covenant, obviously your mind says, well, that must mean there was an old covenant. If there's going to be a new one, there must be an old one. And the old one that is implicit in this passage is the Mosaic covenant The law. You think about the book of Exodus where God brought a people out of slavery in Egypt. He marched them through the parted waters of the Red Sea. We just sang about that earlier as we talked about how Moses is like Jesus. He marched the people through the Red Sea. He marched them to Sinai and he entered into a covenant with them. He wrote the covenant on tablets of stone with his own finger. And Moses carried the covenant down to the people. And in this covenant, God said, you are going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to bless you. And the people responded. You can read it in the book of Exodus. As they're gathered around Mount Sinai, they said, we will do all of the things that you tell us to do. God promises to bless. His people promise to obey. As you read the Old Testament, you realize that God kept his end of the deal. He blessed the people. You also realize pretty quick that his people failed miserably when it came to keeping their end of the covenant. And this is important. You also realize that no one should have been surprised that the people failed so miserably. I'll just give you a few references. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 31, The Lord is speaking to Moses. Moses is about to die, and the people are about to go into the promised land. And all of the terms of the covenant have been laid out. God's going to bless. They're going to obey. And God's talking to Moses. And do you know what God says to Moses? He says, Moses, when they get in there, they're going to rebel. They're going to turn from me. They're going to forget me. They are not going to keep the terms of the covenant. God knows it. God doesn't just say Moses, I have a sneaking suspicion that this thing is going to go sideways. He just says to Moses, Moses, this is going to end badly. These people are not going to keep their end of the their end of the covenant. You get to the book of Joshua. Joshua leads the people in. They fight. They conquer Jericho. They fight in the north. They fight in the south. They take the promised land. They're getting ready to settle in these cities that they didn't build and eat of these uh, farms that they didn't plant. And Joshua gets all the people together and he says to them, listen, Joshua 24, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house we will serve the Lord. And the people are ecstatic and they're excited and with one voice they say, "We will obey the Lord and serve him only." And it's a great pep rally at the end of the book of Joshua. And then do you know what Joshua says? He pours cold water on the whole thing and he says, "You can't do it. God brought you in here. God kept his end. But he literally tells the people, you are not able to serve the Lord and to keep your end of the covenant relationship. You don't have the ability. Moses knew this. Joshua knew this. Nehemiah knew it. Nehemiah is one of the men who after these Jews in Jeremiah go into exile, Nehemiah will bring some of them back. The city had been destroyed and Nehemiah came back with some of these people and they rebuilt the wall They made a nice wall around the city and Nehemiah said, okay, look, we broke the covenant and we spent 70 years in exile. Let's not break it again. And he gathered all the people together and they wrote the covenant out on paper and they signed their names on it and they said, we're gonna keep the covenant. And the very first two things they said they would not do, we will not work on the Sabbath and we will not marry pagan people. Nehemiah signs a document. He takes a one month vacation And when he comes back, they're all working on the Sabbath and they've all married pagan people. And he gets so mad. Nehemiah gets so mad at the inability of the people to keep the terms of the covenant, to obey the Lord. He literally, this is in the Bible, he starts punching people in the face. And he starts grabbing people. I would get a pass on this one. He starts grabbing people by the hair and yanking their hair out of their head. I have never wanted to do that to you, ever. Most of you, maybe some of you. Most of you, I've never thought about that. He's punching people and he's yanking hair out and he's screaming at the top of his lungs. You didn't do it. Well, Moses knew they couldn't. Joshua knew they couldn't. Nehemiah learned the hard way that they couldn't. They couldn't keep the terms of this old covenant written on tablets of stone. And so Jeremiah offers some hope. And he says, the Lord will establish a new covenant. And he very specifically says, verse 32, not like the one that I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. It's not like that one, but it's going to be a new one. It's going to be new and different. It's going to be better. I thought about this passage all week long. In between episodes of EBS in the morning and shuffling my kids around in the afternoon, I'm thinking about the new covenant. And I start to think about how much Americans like things that are new. We don't like things that are old. And that was the first thought that was sort of running through my head. And then I started thinking, yeah, but you know what? I I know people in Odessa. And I think a lot of the people I know in Odessa, if I asked them, would actually say that old things are better than new things. So I conducted a sociological experiment, and I got on Facebook. And I got on my page on Facebook, and I said, hey, I need your help. I asked you guys, all the people I'm friends with on Facebook, I said, I need your help with a question. And the question that I posed is this. What is an example of something or some things that aren't as good as they used to be. And I had some idea of what some of you might say, but I got comments all week long. People kept commenting. People had a lot of opinions about things that are not as good now, new things that are not as good as old things are. And I put a disclaimer on my post. The disclaimer on my post was, please do not be tacky in your comments because I will delete your comment and I will block you from my Facebook life and you and I will not be as good of friends as we used to be. That will be something I'll put on the list. You and me and our friendship will not be as good as it used to be. Most of you played by the rules. Most of you. Some of you said this. The Dallas Cowboys. And I take great offense at that comment we have our quarterback this year, he's back, he's got a fat wallet, and we're gonna win the Super Bowl, and you are gonna repent in just a couple of months when Dallas Cowboys win the Super Bowl. So that was one answer. Let me give you just a sense of some of the other answers, okay? A lot of people said TV, movies, cartoons, and music, which I'll just lump together and say media. You say that stuff is not as good as it used to be, well, I used to like this show, or I like to uh, like this kind of music, and now it's just all junk and I don't like it, and it's no good. And that didn't surprise me. Sociologists actually study this, and they say that most of us, in our teens and our 20s, lock in, especially with music, to a certain kind of music, and that becomes our music. And I'm looking around the room, and some of you are beyond the teens and the 20s. And so it doesn't surprise me that you would say, oh, all that music now is terrible. It's the worst. And your grandkids disagree, but in 30 years, they'll agree. That's just kind of what happens. So we lock in on some of those things. A lot of people said appliances and cars. And i lump those together. I know they're different. You don't drive a washing machine. But I lump them together because they're sort of big ticket purchases, big things that you buy And people said, oh, back in my day, you'd buy a car and you'd drive it for 800,000 miles. You'd buy a washing machine and it would last forever. And so a lot of people said these things are not as good as they used to be. I like the old ones better. By the way, if you search through the comments, one of my friends is an appliance salesman, and he said you're all full of it. And he said, no, the old is not better than the new, and he took offense at that. But a lot of people said these things are not as good as they used to be. A lot of people, this is sort of a big category of uh, several things, said manners, loyalty, ethics, and customer service are not as good as they used to be. And my guess is if you've gone out to eat in Odessa lately, you're nodding your head. You're like, yeah, we went out to eat yesterday, and it wasn't like it used to be, or it wasn't like I remember it being. And a lot of you are more mature, and you're nodding your head saying, yeah, these things are terrible now. These things are the worst. They were so much better when when I was a kid. And the kids these days, they're terrible at this stuff. And I would just remind you, they're your kids. They're your kids, so just easy. A lot of people said schools and education are not as good as they used to be. And as I read through the comments and some of the, the extra things people said, I think some people meant the things that are taught in school are not as good As they used to be. And I think some people meant the way that things are taught in school is not quite as good as it used to be in the old days. A lot of people talked about communication. And almost all of those comments about communication made reference to cell phones and how people have a hard time having one-on-one personal eye contact conversations because there's this constant interruption we carry around called a cell phone and we've got to look at it all the time and people have a hard time communicating. So that was something people said, it's not as good as it used to be. The new is not as good as the old. A lot of people talked about food. Now, just big category of food. And I'll give you a sampling of, of what you mentioned. Uh, Rosa's Chicken Fajitas, Coca-Cola, Ding Dongs, Pizza Hut, cereal, because there's no toys in the cereal anymore, cheese balls. I didn't know cheese balls had deteriorated, but apparently they've deteriorated. Nestle Crunch Bars, Furs, mashed potatoes and gravy is apparently not as good as it used to be. A&W Root Beer, the list went on and on and on. People saying these things are not as good now. The new version is not as good as the old version. One answer that I thought was good was patriotism. It's not like it was in the past. And I think it's a terrible thing. I think it's a sad thing that as a society, we seem to be moving in a direction where more and more and more people hate, just absolutely hate and are humiliated by the fact that we are the United States of America. I'm not suggesting to you that we're a perfect nation. We're not. There's a lot of stuff in this country that I don't like at all. I'm not suggesting to you that our founding fathers were perfect men. They weren't. They had blind spots. They made mistakes. We can look back and say, they were wrong about this. They were really, really wrong. But I think we also ought to be able to look objectively and say, this isn't the worst place to live in the history of humanity, all things being considered. Uh, Our mission team is going to travel to Kenya. We have friends in Kenya. We love Kenya, but I promise you on the way back, we're going to be ready to be back here. This is not the worst place that you could find yourself living. And no, we don't have to defend everything that our nation does or has done in the past, but I think we can say a free country is a remarkable thing, and it's not a terrible thing to be proud of living in a free country. So those are the answers. And I read through the answers. There's something like 160 comments in just a couple of days. And I read through all that, and it's cars and appliances and food and manners and loyalty and customer service and TV and media and music, on and on and on and on and on, the Dallas Cowboys. And I just found myself thinking, is anything new better? Because I had a hunch that people would say all of those things. And we have this tendency to look back and to say, It used to be better then, in the old days, than it is now in the new days. Why is it that there was such an overwhelming avalanche of answers of people saying these things are worse now? The new is worse than the old. I think in part, it's because we are all prone to nostalgia, We remember things from our past. We forget a lot of the bad stuff as time goes on. And we're just nostalgic about places and things and different stuff. And we just sort of long for that in a nostalgic way. I think as Americans, we're kind of jaded because we get bombarded with so much advertisement that says, I have something to sell you that is new and improved. And at some point, you just roll your eyes and you say, it's not new or improved. It's the same thing you sold me yesterday. You just put a new sticker on the front of it. And so we hear new and we think, oh, it's not new. It's not not better. You haven't improved anything. So we look at the past and we're prone to say the old is better than the new. Listen, when it comes to the old covenant and the new covenant, I promise you the new is better. It is not a debate. We don't need to have a Facebook poll. We don't need a public opinion survey. The new is far superior to the old. In fact, there's a book of the Bible, a book we studied not long ago, the book of Hebrews. The overwhelming message of Hebrews is the new covenant is really way better than the old covenant. Why would you want to go back to the old if you could live under the new? It is so much better. This is the first place in the Bible, Jeremiah 31, where God explicitly begins to talk to his people about a new covenant. It's the first time that that phrase is found, a new covenant. The question is, what does Jeremiah want us to know about the new covenant? Why is it so much better than the old? Here's the first reason. The new covenant would be written in, or you could say on, the hearts of God's people, meaning it would be an internal thing. Look at verse 33, if you have your Bible open to Jeremiah 31. Verse 33, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. For the Hebrews, that idea of your heart was an idea that talked about the the internal person, the internal self, who you are on the deepest level, the true you. And what God is saying to his people is, in this new covenant, I'm going to make a change, not just an external cosmetic change, but an internal change in the hearts of my people. I'm not going to change them from the outside in. I'm going to change them from the inside out. God's going to do that work. He's going to write his law on our hearts. The old covenant written on tablets of stone. The new covenant written on the hearts of God's people. You know, one of the men who went into exile, the exile that Jeremiah kept talking about, one of the men who went into exile in Babylon was named Ezekiel. And Ezekiel read this stuff about a new covenant. And he had a relationship with the Lord. And he was a prophet who spoke for the Lord. And in Ezekiel 36, he talked about this. He described it slightly differently, but it's the same idea. Ezekiel says in the new covenant, God is going to take out your heart of stone and he's going to give you a heart of flesh. Can you imagine what your life would be like if you had a heart of stone? You'd be dead. And that's the image, that's the metaphor. Spiritually, you're dead. Your heart is dead. Dead as a rock. And in the new covenant, God is going to reach in and he's going to take out your dead heart and he is going to give you a new heart. He's going to change you from the inside out. Jeremiah and Ezekiel are talking about new birth. It's not something that we do. It's something that God does. It's something that Jesus talked to Nicodemus about in the New Testament. Nicodemus said, Jesus, we got all these questions. What's going on? Who are you? What's happening? We think we've got you figured out, but we're not sure. And Jesus looked at Nicodemus and he said, Stop. If you want to enter the kingdom of God, you've got to be born again. Nicodemus, you have a heart of stone and you need a heart of flesh. Nicodemus, you don't need more laws written on tablets of stone. You need the law of God written on your heart. That's the first benefit, the first perk of the New Testament is that God does a work on the inside of his people. That's a mark of the new covenant. Here's a second Benefit. The new covenant will result in a true relationship between God and his people. A true, genuine relationship. Verse 33, we left off at the end. He says, I will be their God. They will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they'll all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity And remember their sin no more. You understand that in Old Testament, Old Covenant Israel, people people were physically born into the covenant community. And not all of those people knew the Lord. That's evident by the time you get to Jeremiah's life. There was a tiny remnant of people who actually knew the Lord. And most of the Hebrew people, most of the Israelites, most of the Jews did not know the Lord. And so there was a need for Jeremiah to say, Know the Lord. You need to know the Lord. Quit following Baal and follow Yahweh. But he says in the new covenant, it's not going to be like that because the people who are part of the new covenant community are not physically born into it. They are born again into it. God writes his law on their hearts. It's the miracle of regeneration, of new birth. And the result is that all of those born again know the Lord. They don't just know about him They're not just aware of him, they actually know him. I could put some names on the screen and I could say, or you could ask me, Landon, do you know Jay Hendricks and Brooks Landgraf and Sandra Woodley, news guy, state representative, president of the university right down the street? Do you know those people? And I would say to you, well, I know who they are. I recognize them from the news and social media and the newspaper. And I think if they walked in the door and I saw their face, I would recognize them. I would know who they are. But I don't know them. And you say, well, I, I, I know them. I shook their hand once at a dinner. You might have an acquaintance with them. There might be a familiarity with them. But many of us don't know And some of you are thinking, no, I actually do know that person. And you understand the difference. I know that person. I have a relationship with that person. When the Hebrews talked about knowing, it wasn't just knowing about. It wasn't just being able to answer questions about. It It wasn't just I know the title and the position and I know where they work. It was a relationship. That's what God's promising. All of those who are born again who have the law of God written on their heart will know the Lord thirdly the new covenant would involve God forgiving the sins of his people is a beautiful gospel promise in verse 34 I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more God forgives he doesn't continue to hold our sin against us he has every right to we are sinners he is holy He has every right to count our sin against us, but what he says to his people in this new covenant relationship, I'm going to forgive it. I'm not going to ask you to get even with me. I'm not going to lay out a 12 step plan where you can work your way back into my good graces. Just going to forgive it. He can forgive it even as a good judge because in the fullness of time, he sent Jesus who died as a sacrifice for sinners. If you're a believer, your sin was counted as paid for at the cross. And God, on the basis of what Jesus did for you, forgives. He forgives it because your debt has been paid. Your debt has been forgiven. He describes it in a striking way. He says, I will remember their sin no more. Some of you know the frustration of forgetting something, forgetting a name, forgetting an event, forgetting something important, a special date. We read this and we say, what does it mean that God will remember our sin no more? Well, it doesn't mean that it's out of his memory banks. God's omniscient. He doesn't forget anyone or anything. He knows all things. When God doesn't remember, it's not like you and me not remembering. For, For example, when I was younger, I used to ride my bike in the summers down to my granddad's house. He lived a couple of blocks away. And baseball, when I was growing up, during the day you had two options. You could watch the Cubs on WGN or you could watch the Braves on TBS. And my granddad liked the Braves. He liked to root for the winner, so we watched the Braves. And for a couple of years there, when I was growing up, we watched the Braves every day. And I could tell you all the players and all the positions and all the averages and all the salaries. and all the, I knew all that stuff. And I can look back now, and I can say, oh, yeah, that's that's Sid Bream, and it feels like he's still running around third base. He was coming so slow back to home, and I remember that. But there's a lot I don't remember. I've just forgotten it. I can't tell you who the starting lineup was. I can't tell you what their batting averages was. I forgot it. We forget things. In seminary, I had to take Hebrew and Greek. I made good grades in both of those classes. I can't tell you much about Hebrew today. I don't remember it. I've forgotten it. I didn't use it after I graduated, and most of it's just been in my brain and now out of my brain. And the same with Greek to some degree. You don't use something like that once you've learned it, you forget it. You don't remember it. So we forget all the time. There's things that we don't remember all the time. That's not what happens to God with our sins. He doesn't forget in the sense that He says, Now, wait, what was it that you did that one time? It's right there on the tip of my tongue. I, He doesn't forget when he says that I'll remember your sins no more. It's tied to this idea of forgiveness. And what he's saying is I will not count your sins against you because they were counted against my son in his death on the cross. He forgives. Fourth, the success of the new covenant will be absolutely certain. You notice that verse 35, 36, and 37 are set apart with a different format in most Bible translations. It's telling you that this is a poem or a song of sorts. And Jeremiah talks about the fixed order of creation. He talks about measuring the expanse of the heavens. He talks about going down and exploring the depths of the earth. And he says, look... If the earth disappears, then God will break his covenant. But as long as you look around and you see the earth and the heavens, God's going to keep his covenant. If you could measure the heavens, get your tape measure out and figure out how big it is, then God will forget his covenant. But if you can't reach all the way across the universe, God's going to remember his covenant. And if you can go down to the depths of the ocean and the depths of the earth and walk around down there, if you can do that, well, God might forget his covenant. But if you can't, God will keep his covenant. And all these things, he's saying the success of this new covenant is not in question. God is taking the initiative to make it sure and certain. Look at verse 31. He says, I will make a new covenant. Not we. This is not a two-party agreement. It's a one-party making the covenant. God says, I'm going to make the covenant. I'm going to make it with you, but I'm the one that makes it. Verse 33, he says, I will make this covenant with the house of Israel. He says, I will put my law within them. He says, I will be their God. Verse 34, he says, I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. There's an emphasis on that at some point that you shouldn't miss. God does it. I will do it. I will do it. I will do it. God takes the initiative in this covenant and the success of it is absolutely certain. One last thought. The new covenant would ultimately lead to the new Jerusalem, in the new creation. When you look at verse 38 to 39 and 40, there's all this stuff about uh, cities and towers and corners and gates and valleys and all the rest of this stuff. All this land will be sacred to the Lord. He's gonna rebuild what's been torn down. It's a remarkable prophecy because when Jeremiah wrote it, people could literally look around and see it all. Hadn't been torn down yet. But he told them, it's going to get torn down and you're going to go into exile. And it happened. It got torn down. People hauled off into exile in Babylon for 70 years. And then the Lord brought them back just like he said he would. He keeps his promises. He brought the people back. They rebuilt the land. A man named Zerubbabel came back and they rebuilt the temple. A man named Nehemiah we talked about came back and they rebuilt the wall around the city. They rebuilt the city. And it was great for about 500 years All the way up through the life, death, the resurrection of Jesus, the city was standing, the temple was standing. But then in the year 70 A.D., a Roman general named Titus marched against Jerusalem and tore it all down again in very dramatic fashion, torn down in 70 A.D. It's an interesting historical fact when you read the end of verse 40 that says it, Jerusalem, will not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. God's promising to rebuild the city, and he promises that when I rebuild it this time, it will never be torn down again. And we look in history and we say, well, it was torn down. It is still torn down. There is no temple in Jerusalem. There is a Muslim mosque on the Temple Mount. It's been torn down. It's a reminder to us that this prophecy in Jeremiah is looking past the exile past the return of the exiles, past the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, past the year 70 AD when the city was torn down again to the end when Christ comes back. Revelation 21, you can read about what happens when Christ returns. The Bible says that the return of Christ at the end, the new Jerusalem will come down from heaven to the earth. Heaven will come down to earth and the dwelling place of God will be with his people. And there's a verse in Revelation 21 that is word for word, what you read in Jeremiah 31, 33. I will be their God, and they will be my people. He'll restore his people and restore his city, and it will never be torn down again. And this ancient prophecy looks forward to that day. Until that day comes... Christian people like us gather together on the Lord's day and we celebrate not the old covenant. We don't offer sacrifices. We're not checking the tag on your shirt to make sure it's only one kind of fabric. We're not asking you if you ate bacon this morning. We're celebrating the new covenant established in the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus. We read about these stories In the Bible, we sing songs like the one that Jake has been teaching us about how Christ is the story of the Bible from beginning to end. It's all pointing us to this new covenant. And one of the things we do as God's people is we take the Lord's Supper together. Jesus, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, said to his disciples, This is the new covenant established in my blood. That covenant that Jeremiah promised you. 500 years ago is now being fully and finally established because Jesus laid down his life for us. We remember that, we celebrate that when we take the Lord's Supper. So this morning, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've been baptized, you've turned from your sins and you have trusted in Christ alone for salvation, we invite you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. I'm gonna give you just a moment to think and to pray and to reflect and to talk to the Lord before we take the Lord's Supper together. I want you to be mindful of the fact that the new covenant established by the blood of Jesus is not a covenant that holds together because you keep the terms perfectly. We're just like the people of Israel in the old. We don't have the ability to do that. But we enjoy this new covenant because of what Christ has secured for us, the forgiveness of our sins. That our sins are not counted against us because they were accounted against Jesus when he died our death on the cross. So I'm going to ask you just to pray for a moment. To reflect on Jeremiah 31. To thank the Lord for his provision in sending Jesus to die for us. And then we'll take the Lord's Supper together.